Welcome to this podcast on fraud and misrepresentation brought to you by Cali. I'm Professor Jennifer Martin. There are three sets of defenses that might be used to avoid enforcement of a contract which is otherwise valid. First, capacity-related defenses. Second, assent-related defenses. And third, public policy-related defenses. The topic of this podcast is the basic concepts related to the assent-related defenses of fraud and misrepresentation. Most fraud and misrepresentation result in a contract being voidable by the party protected by the defense, meaning the victim. Meaning they can elect to carry on with the contract or not to continue it, which we call affirming or disaffirming it. In the event that the party does seek to avoid the contract, the party will request that a court rescind it. Rescission will essentially unmake the contract. In most cases, the court will place the parties in the position they would have been in if the contract never existed, using the remedy of restitution to effectuate this result. If the party does affirm the contract, they still may be able to seek damages for the tort of fraud, but any such claim is outside the scope of contract law. However, there is one type of fraud that results in a contract being void. This type of fraud is called fraud in the factum or fraud in the execution and occurs when the person agreeing to the contract was deceived into entering into the contract. This type of fraud occurs in a way that prevents the party from actually manifesting assent to the contract. Let's look at an example of fraud in the factum. Example number one. Teresa was the office assistant for Edith for many years. Each year, Teresa prepared holiday greeting cards for Edith to sign. Teresa prepared the cards for Edith's signature, but also included an agreement whereby Edith promised to pay City Motors $10,000 for a car to be delivered to Teresa. Teresa presented the agreement with the cards to Edith in a way that made the agreement appear like a greeting card, so Edith signed the agreement along with the greeting cards. Edith is likely to claim that this agreement is void as it resulted from fraud in the factum. Let's turn to misrepresentation. This defense requires four elements. First, a misrepresentation. Second, the misrepresentation must either be fraudulent or material. Third, the misrepresentation must induce the party to assent to the contract. And fourth, the party must rely and be justified in relying on the misrepresentation. Sometimes you will hear reference to fraud in the inducement to refer to misrepresentations that are fraudulent, meaning intentional, because these types of misrepresentations induce a party to enter into a contract that they are aware that they are entering. In general, a misrepresentation is simply a statement that is not in accord with the facts. Basically, something that's not true, whether or not the party intends to state an untruth or not. A misrepresentation can be made by an express statement, inferred from conduct, or arise from a concealment, or in some cases, a non-disclosure. However, mere opinions or puffery are typically not misrepresentations. 
Let's look at some examples. Example number two. Bookseller advertised a used copy of Oliver Twist for sale of the price of $6. Betty bought the book from bookseller after bookseller told her that the book was a great story and that she would love it. Betty did not love the book or think it was a great story. Bookseller did not make a misrepresentation by his statements concerning the book because the statements were puffery or opinion. Example number three. Bookseller advertised a rare copy of Oliver Twist for sale at the price of $4,000. Betty bought the book from bookseller after bookseller told her that the book was a first edition. Bookseller knew it was a third edition, but told Betty it was a first edition. Bookseller made a misrepresentation by his false express statement concerning the book. Betty can either rescind the contract or affirm it, and perhaps might be able to sue and tort for damages because the misrepresentation was intentional. Example number four. Bookseller advertised a rare copy of Oliver Twist for sale at the price of $4,000. Betty bought the book from Bookseller after Bookseller told her that the book was a first edition. Bookseller did not in fact know for sure whether it was a first edition and did not bother to verify what he said. After receiving the book and paying for it, Betty took the book to an expert who investigated thoroughly and determined that the book was a third edition worth about $2,000. Bookseller made a misrepresentation by his express statement concerning the book. The second element is satisfied because even though bookseller may not have made an intentional fraudulent statement, it was material. Note that here Betty would not have a claim in tort because the element of intent necessary for the tort is missing. Example number five. Bookseller advertised a rare premium condition copy of Oliver Twist for sale at the price of $4,000. Betty bought the book from Bookseller after examining it. Unbeknownst to Betty, Bookseller had concealed damage to the cover of the book by using touch-up paint. Bookseller made a misrepresentation by his concealment of the damage to the book. While a misrepresentation usually arises from an affirmative statement, in some cases a failure to disclose a fact is treated like an affirmative statement. A contracting party is not always under an expectation to make disclosures under the doctrine of caveat emptor, buyer beware. In four situations though, non-disclosure can be a misrepresentation where 1. Disclosure is necessary to prevent a previous assertion from being a misrepresentation. Two, disclosure would correct a mistake of the other party as to a basic assumption of the contract and non-disclosure amounts to a failure of good faith and fair dealing. Three, disclosure would correct a mistake as to the content of a writing evidencing the contract or four, disclosure is expected due to a relationship of trust and confidence. Let's look at some examples of non-disclosure. Example number six, bookseller advertised a rare first edition copy of Oliver Twist for the sale price of $4,000. 
The book is appraised at only $3,000, but bookseller does not disclose the appraisal to potential buyers. After seeing the advertisement, Betty bought the book from bookseller, who did not disclose the appraisal. Booksellers not made a misrepresentation by his non-disclosure, as none of the special situations requiring disclosure apply. Basically, bookseller is not expected to share his information here. Example number seven. Bookseller advertised a rare, undamaged first edition copy of Oliver Twist for the sale at the price of $4,000. After advertising the book, bookseller accidentally damages the book such that it's now only worth $2,000. After seeing the advertisement, Betty bought the book from bookseller who did not reveal the damage. Booksellers made a misrepresentation by his non-disclosure of the facts needed to correct its previous assertion regarding the quality of the book. Basically, bookseller is expected to speak up about the new information regarding the damage. Example number eight. Betty agreed to buy a rare first edition copy of Oliver Twist from bookseller for $4,000. Bookseller knew that Betty mistakenly thought the sales contract freely permitted returns within seven days. Bookseller knows that the contract does not contain such a provision, but does not tell Betty. Bookseller's non-disclosure of the return policy is equivalent to an assertion that the writing contains such a provision. Again, bookseller is expected to speak up to prevent a mistake about the contents of the writing. Recall that in order for the contract to be voidable, the misrepresentation must also be either fraudulent or material. A misrepresentation is fraudulent where the maker knows or believes the statement is not in accord with the facts, does not have confidence in the assertion made, or knows that he does not have the basis for the assertion. A misrepresentation is material if it is one that would induce a reasonable person to manifest assent or the maker knows it's likely to induce assent. In example three from earlier, where bookseller knew it was a third edition but told Betty it was a first edition, bookseller's misrepresentation would be fraudulent. However, if bookseller had merely been mistaken in stating the book was a first edition, the statement would not be fraudulent but would be material as a reasonable person would manifest assent based upon the quality of the book in this case. Moving on to the third element, a misrepresentation must also induce the party to assent to the contract, which occurs if the misrepresentation substantially contributes to the decision to manifest assent. In example three from earlier, bookseller's statement that the book was a first edition would have been an inducing cause contributing to Betty's decision to manifest assent in light of the premium paid for the advertised first edition. Finally, the party must rely and be justified in relying on the misrepresentation. A contracting party is not generally entitled to rely where the statements are one of opinion. If, for instance, bookseller said the book was a first edition, but Betty replied that both the first and third editions were very valuable, then it would not seem that Betty was relying on bookseller's statement. 
Alternatively, if bookseller said that he thought the book looks like it could be a first edition, the opinion would not be one on which the buyer would be justified in relying. Before concluding, just a word about the parole evidence rule. It should be noted that a person claiming misrepresentation often offers evidence of a statement made outside of the written contract that contradicts the term of the writing. This may appear to violate the parole evidence rule. However, because the evidence of the misrepresentation will not be used in order to add terms to the contract, but rather in order to show that no contract was formed or is avoidable, the parole evidence rule does not apply and the evidence is freely admissible. At this point, you should be able to explain that a misrepresentation is a statement not in accord with the facts, which might be grounds for the victim to avoid the contract. You should also be able to identify the elements of a misrepresentation defense. One, the misrepresentation. Two, the misrepresentation is fraudulent or material. Three, the misrepresentation induced assent. And four, the victim relied and was justified in relying on the misrepresentation. You should also be able to identify fraud in the factum, where assent is obtained by fraudulent means, whereby the victim did not know they were assenting to a contract, making the contract void. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast on fraud and misrepresentation. Laudables are produced and distributed by Cali, the Center for Computer-Assisted Legal Instruction. Find more laudables at www.cali.org laudables. Send your question and feedback to laudables at cali.org. That's L-A-W-D-I-B-L-E-S at C-A-L-I dot org. The Laudable theme music is Ask Me No Question by Learning Music. Laudables are for educational purposes only. Please seek an attorney if you need legal advice.